On this week's Cityscape, teenagers and drug abuse. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki. This morning, we'll hear from teens who've learned to say no to drugs. I don't want to be like everyone else. Teens who've dabbled in drugs. I actually did it once. And teens who let drugs take over their lives. I felt like I was dying. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Glad you're with us. My name is Samantha Henry. I'm 17 years old. People do use marijuana, but they also use like amphetamines because they think that they can stay awake longer, do more work and stuff. I actually did it once to try, but it was really bad for me because it almost gave me a heart attack. They sell it in schools, even though some people don't know that they do. Schools are supposed to be drug-free zones, but a recent survey found that middle and high schools nationwide are infested with them. Joining me on the phone to talk about that report and more is Elizabeth Planet. Elizabeth is director of special projects for the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. Elizabeth, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for having me. I want to talk to you about two very interesting studies you recently put out. One says that the nation's schools are infested with drugs. Yes, we conducted a survey of teenagers this past spring. These are kids ages 12 to 17, and we also surveyed their parents. And these are kids and and parents from all around the country. And what we found that 80% of high schoolers are attending schools where illegal drugs are used on the grounds of their schools, sold on the grounds of their schools, where students are keeping illegal drugs either on them or in their lockers, where students are showing up high on drugs at school, or where students are showing up drunk at school. And the same is true for 44% of our middle schoolers. Did you expect the numbers to be so high? From my perspective, those are very high numbers. And we've been looking at drugs in schools for a long time. We've been tracking this. And this represents an increase over the past couple of years. What's really surprising about your report is that a majority of parents who knew that there were drugs at their kids' school, they pretty much just threw their hands up in the air. 59% of those parents say that the goal of making their kids' school drug-free is unrealistic. That's really surprising. Well, you know, they are either really pessimistic about the school situation or they just don't realize their own power to effect change in the school. Talking about parental involvement, let's talk about this other study that the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University put out. This report deals with family dinners. It says that the more children spend time with their families sitting down for a meal, the less likely they are to do drugs. What we have found through our research is that Parents who are having dinner with their kids five to seven nights per week, those kids are uh, much less likely to be abusing prescription drugs, using illegal drugs, including marijuana. They're much less likely to smoke cigarettes, and they're much less likely to drink alcohol compared to kids who are having fewer than three family dinners per week. Important to point out that this is not an answer. This is just one thing that you can do to help prevent your kids from doing drugs. That's absolutely right. There are a lot of factors that contribute to teen substance use, uh, and so this is certainly not a sort of perfect solution uh, for every family, but it gives your kids an opportunity to bring an issue to you if there's a problem. And 47% of both parents and teens say that during or after dinner is the best time to talk about something important. What are you seeing, though? Are you seeing that more kids are sitting down for a meal with their parents, or is there less of that going on? 
We find that about 59% of the families that we survey are having frequent family dinners, five to seven family dinners per week, and that number has been pretty consistent over the years. One finding this year that that was really interesting is that um, when we asked the kids what they prefer to do, do they prefer to have dinner with their parents or do they prefer to eat alone, 84% of the kids say that they prefer to eat dinner with their parents. So I think a lot of parents of teenagers have the impression that their kids don't want to be around them, uh, but the reality is that their kids really do want their parents to sit down to dinner with them. There we go, sending a very strong message to all of the parents out there, isn't it? Absolutely. Your kids really need you to be there for them. And again, I think the family dinner is, is a really easy way for a lot of families to do that. Elizabeth Planet is Director of Special Projects for the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. Elizabeth, thanks so much. Thank you. Hey, girl, que pasa? Our weekend was crazy. What I can remember. Wait, wait, wait. So down, Chica. Take it easy. A what? A picture of me? Who sent it to you? How did she get it? I'm not even friends with her. You gotta send it to me now. This must have been from Saturday night. I was so high. Who do you think got it? That's a new anti-drug ad that's specifically aimed at Hispanic parents and teens. It comes in response to a federal report that says Hispanic teens are more likely to use drugs than their white and black peers. Aspira is an advocacy group for Hispanic youth here in New York City. The group supports the new ads, but is disappointed they're not in Spanish. I was recently joined in studio by a couple of members of Aspira to talk about the problem of drug use among Hispanic teenagers. We have Mark Gonzalez. He's the group's chief operating officer. Mark, welcome. Good morning, George. And also with us is Jeanette Bocanegra, and she is a parent involvement coordinator. Jeanette, thanks for being here. Good morning. Thank you for inviting us. Why is drug use higher among Hispanic teenagers? Mark? I'll answer that question this way. We know that the report says that um, among all ethnic groups, the percentage of uh, Latino young people is still high. We're still looking at the numbers in terms of how we work with young people. We do acknowledge that a lot of work has been done in those areas, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. What has been done to help fight drug use among Hispanic teenagers? What we do in Aspira is help parents understand that you are your child's first teacher. And certain issues are very difficult to discuss parents and a child, but when we give them the techniques that they need to be able to open up a conversation such as drugs, sexuality, um, parents feel more comfortable, but they need the resources and the tools to be able to sit down and speak to their child. And what are those tools? What do you equip them with? Well, first of all, we want parents to understand and appreciate who they are building their self-esteem. And once parents feel comfortable with themselves, they're able to talk to their children. This report that came out from a White House Drug Control Policy Office said that there's a possibility that acculturation, that Hispanics' adoption of American culture may have something to do with the rise in drug use among Hispanic teenagers. What do you think of that? Sometimes the change of culture and just feeling isolated because of language barriers and things of that nature, it may have an impact. We're still looking at that. We're still working with English language learners and how we deal with them and how we sort of help them transcend and transition into what we call the new youth pop culture. We can be intimidated. Jeanette, do you see that out on the streets? Yes, I do. To adapt to the American culture, it's also a shock to a lot of parents. And that's why it's also important to give parents information, not only information, but information in their language, so they can also transition in terms of what's going on. They may come from different uh, 
principles where they come from their country, then they come here and, and they don't find information in their own uh, native language, and sometimes it would be dif- difficult for parents. Jeanette, let me direct this question at you. I grew up with a couple of very close friends of mine, were Puerto Rican, and their family was extremely tight-knit. Now, of course, many families are tight-knit regardless of ethnicity, but do you find that in the Hispanic community that children really don't want to let their parents down? So if they are doing drugs, they'll do everything they can to really hide that or go even beyond because they don't want to disappoint. When parents are not able to notice or the children are hiding things, it's because there's no family time. And if we have to bring back family into the table, into dinner, and be able to keep the kids away from the street and during dinner time, have a conversation. And if your child does not want to have dinner and is not spending enough time at home, there's a problem. And we also know two out of three, and uh, the report did show that two out of three, particularly Latino youth, one of the reasons they gave for not using drugs is disappointing their family and friends. So that's a big reason that young people wouldn't use drugs. And that's why, uh, Jeanette said, parents need to be informed, family time, things of that nature need to be included, mentors, um, extended family need to be involved, and particularly in their native language. What about role models? Do you think there are enough role models in the Hispanic community? Role models have a direct impact on what's happening to young people. That's why through our mentoring programs, through our city youth conference, we try to expose young people to a positive Latino role model, not just your baseball players, not just uh, your movie stars, but we have Aspira alumni anywhere from Jimmy Smith, who's Aspirante, Fernando Ferrer with Aspirante, Gladys Carillon, Councilwoman Melissa Mark Viverito. So these are people who have had a direct impact and influence on community, and these are the type of role models that we expose our young people to. There was one statistic that really startled me in this new report, and that is that more than 10% of Hispanic 8th graders used illegal drugs in the month before this survey was taken. Now, that's compared to 7.5% of whites and under 9% of blacks. The thing that startled me most, really, was the fact that 8th graders, too, so young. I think that is peer pressure. And when we say drugs, um, we're not also including alcohol. And I think that that's where they start. Mark Gonzalez is the chief operating officer of Aspira. It's an advocacy group for Hispanic youth here in New York City. Mark, the website, if people want more information about your group? www.nyaspira.org. In addition, if you want to find out about the cyber awareness campaign, that's www.cafeaspira.com. Also want to thank Jeanette Bocanegra. She is a parent involvement coordinator with Aspira. Jeanette, thanks so much. Thank you. My name is Jonathan Gonzalez. I'm about to be 20 when I go to Clinton High School. I still see people, you know, buy alcohol, smoke weed, look up crack. I got a few friends that do it. It's bad that people actually reduce themselves to such low standards that, you know, they actually get addicted to it. Usually people get drugs, you know, from like their corner stores, like usually around the corner and stuff like that from bodegas, you know, there's a lot of bad areas, you know. Parents should be at least a little bit more responsible, you know, with their children, you know, try to like get them away from all that stuff, talk to them, speak to them, you know, encourage not to take it, stuff like that. My name is Ashley Molero. I'm from the Bronx. I go to Clinton High School, and I'm 17. I just see a lot of kids nowadays, they just take up cigarettes and marijuana just because they want to be part of the in-crowd, and um, according to, like, musical society, that's that's the thing to do. My best friend, she... Um, She's actually, she does marijuana and everything, but she does it more because she's in like a deep state of depression. So it's just, it's sad that our society has come to days now where you can just do this and nobody really cares. The thing about me is I 
fully like I believe in everything about me. I believe that I'm important in the world and I have something to say and I'm not gonna follow what society thinks because I don't want to be like everyone else. I want to be unique. I don't feel that I should be like everyone else. I'm one person in this world. If I want to do something, I'll do it because I want to do it, not because someone else is influencing me or because the world is influencing me. My name is John Cruz. I'm 19. A lot of young people are impressionable to do drugs. I mainly see people using marijuana. I've seen it start at 10 or 11. The kids will find it in the houses, from the parents. It can start really young. But um, you'd be surprised how many people do not want to go into rehab. They, they just feel like, I don't need help in my life, you know? They think they're okay, which they're not. They don't want help. Because I have a brother who went to rehab multiple times, did not work. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boraki. They tried to make me go to rehab. I said no, no, no. Artist Amy Winehouse resists drug rehabilitation in her hit song called Rehab. But in reality, she put a career on hold this summer to kick a reported drug habit. Coming up in just a moment, we'll meet two teenagers who know rehab all too well. Daytop is an alcohol and drug treatment program for teenagers and adults. I'm pleased to have with us this morning 16-year-old Amanda. Amanda is from Long Island. She's currently in treatment at Daytop's residential center in Rhinebeck in Dutchess County. Amanda, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you very much. Also with us is 19-year-old Khalil. Khalil is from Brooklyn. He's already gone through treatment at Daytop. Khalil, welcome. Thank you. And we want to say good morning to Curtis Potter. Curtis is a counselor at Daytop. Curtis, thanks for being here. Thank you. Curtis, let's begin with you. Tell us a little bit more about Daytop and the services it provides. Daytop's been in existence probably since the early 60s. Uh, we're a 24-hour residential therapeutic community. As you stated, we do provide services for adult and adolescents. Uh, you know, and with the adolescents, a little different. We extend further than just substance abuse counseling services that we offer. Um, a lot of behavioral shape and modification, uh, a lot of family therapy, specialized groups that we offer, you know, to address different issues that may exist. I want to get a sense of the path that leads someone to Daytop. So let me talk to Amanda and Khalil. Amanda, you're currently in treatment at Daytop. You're 16 years old. What path led you there? I always grew up with um, seeing a lot of my family members use and, uh, you know, abuse drugs and alcohol. And whenever I was younger, I always said that I never wanted to be like, you know, those people that had that negative impact on my life. And, you know, it turns out that three years later down the road, I was exactly like that because I didn't know how to control and deal with those feelings that I was, you know, going through at that time. I got so wound up in it, and I have a very addictive personality, and because of the, you know, the alcoholism and the drug addiction runs in my family, it was just, you know, I set myself up. I went overboard, and I, you know, I overdosed on alcohol many of times. I just recently did that, and I just, I constantly keep on putting myself in those positions, and it's hard for me to get myself out of it. So alcohol for you was the gateway? Yes. What did that lead to? Um, I found myself in a hospital about a month and a half ago over from an overdose on alcohol. What about drugs? What kind of drugs have you taken? Um, I've done Special K. It's a cat tranquilizer. I've smoked weed. I've done pills before. I don't know. That's really about it. I never really got really deep into it. I've done cocaine. That was my drug of choice when I first came into treatment. 
and I relapsed on alcohol. And these drugs are readily available where you are. Yes. Yeah, especially because of the fact that my family does some of those drugs as well. I would just find their stash and do that. <clears throat> these are close family members? Yes. Yeah, my father is um, an alcoholic and an addict. I've had two members of my family go through Daytop. Many of my cousins have actually done that. I've had my grandfather pass away from his liver destroyed from drinking alcohol. So, I mean, everywhere you turn in my family, there's somebody that's used or drank before. Did they notice that you were going down the same road? They did notice it, but didn't really say anything, because if they said something like, why are you doing that? It was like they were contradicting themselves because of the fact that they were doing the same exact thing I was doing. So they didn't really say much. Did you feel trapped? It sounds to me that you were trapped. You had no way out. That was exactly it. I didn't know. Right when I started using, I didn't know where I belonged. I didn't know where I was supposed to go. I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. And I just continued to use over and over again. So I didn't have to deal with those feelings that were occurring. So I just felt like, you know, that's where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be using. I'm supposed to be drinking. And, you know, I'm not supposed to have a life. And you were with a crowd of kids who were doing the same thing. So no one really to tell you, Amanda, stop it. Yep. Khalil, what about your situation? You're from Brooklyn. How yes. did you end up in treatment at Daytop? My situation kind of started a little different. Like no one in my family like ever like did drugs for the most part that I know of. Kind of started with me like probably like beginning of high school, before high school. And I uh, started smoking marijuana, tried it a couple of times. That led to drinking. And then the more like I got in depth with drinking and smoking, I started hanging out with more people that were doing that. I pretty much I started going down the wrong path from there. From there, like I, I got into selling drugs. I still managed to finish high school and everything. And even like while I was selling drugs, I still ended up going started going to college. But at the same time, I was still like living that double life. I was still doing like a lot of things I wasn't supposed to be doing at the time. I kind of ended up having legal problems. I ended up being arrested. I was talking to a couple people, my lawyer and my, and my family members. And they were telling me that um, treatment like a program would be the best thing for me instead of me just going to jail. So we all decided, like, I decided, my mother decided. So I chose the program and ended up in daytop. You said that you were leading a double life. Did you hide your drug use from your parents, from your other friends? The friends, like, when I was younger that I used to be around, they realized I started smoking. But they weren't really smoking. They didn't, like, kind of shun me for it. But in my own way, I started, like, going towards other people because, like, I'm I'm smoking these guys are not. So I started hanging out with people who are smoking. Now, family-wise, after a while, like, my mother just, she noticed. Like, she noticed, like, the change in me and stuff like that. How did it change? It made me procrastinate on things. Say I had to do something. I procrastinate, put it off. It made me a little more lazy. And, like, my mother noticed it because she raised me. So, of course, she's going to notice it of anyone. Amanda, you mentioned peer pressure being a problem for you. I had a lot of negative friends around me and especially my ex-boyfriend anything that he did or anything he wanted I was right there beside him doing you know anything and that's one reason why I caught my first charge which ended me up on probation and drug court once you get wound up in that negativity it's very 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 hard to get yourself out Curtis talk to me about the parents in this how difficult it must be for them to watch their kids get into this kind of trouble and get into this kind of trouble again? It's very difficult. You know, a big part of therapy, treatment, or whatever is the ability to take ownership and really be accountable for your actions. And a lot of times, families, you know, aren't ready to do that, to really face the music and say, okay, I contributed, I enabled, um, I condoned these behaviors for all of these years. And in turn, 
this was the end result. The person in treatment tries to play divide and conquer between the therapist and the family, you know, trying to make us out to be the bad guys. And a lot of times, believe it or not, out of guilt, families feed into that, you know, which makes the job a lot harder. That is a, a big dynamic that we're always looking to improve in, in terms of the family support. Khalil, it sounds like you have a very supportive mother. Yes, I do. Is she constantly watching your back? Yeah. Like, my mother is the type of person, um, she would talk to me, and um, she would tell me, like, what's going on or what should, I, what I should do right, or she'd tell me about what I'm doing wrong. But regardless of what, like, right or wrong, like, she would, she would always be behind me. Was yeah. it easy for you to kick your habit? Did you relapse? Oh, no, I didn't relapse. Um, like I said before, like, my I was only alcohol and, and weed, so after, like, a month, maybe a couple of weeks, it was like I was used to not, I was used to being sober, so it wasn't hard. Curtis, I find what Khalil said somewhat interesting when you say it was only alcohol and weed, but both of those are clearly gateway drugs to much worse. I think that's a, a, a problem that exists in society in general. You know, uh, marijuana use is, is definitely minimized, and especially when you're dealing with adolescents. Um, you know, I find myself almost having to be a, a salesman at times to, you know, try to convince them that, uh, you know, just marijuana use can lead to other things, to bigger things. What about risky behavior? Of course, doing drugs, drinking alcohol is risky in itself. But we often hear stories about young people who do crazy things, maybe get behind the wheel of a car, maybe dive into an empty swimming pool. Did you, either of you, Amanda, Khalil, ever find yourself in that kind of situation? Oh, yes. Plenty of times I've had had a very, you know, a lot of embarrassing moments where I would walk into stores, you know, drunk. I went up to somebody, started holding a conversation with them, not even knowing who they are. I just, I make a complete fool out of myself. And I would drive under the influence all the time. But um, thank God, like, I never got into anything, like, really serious or hurt anybody. Because, like, I would smoke and drink and drive all the time. Honestly, like, when I was younger, when I, like, when I got my permit, I was under the impression that when you smoke weed and you drive, you're more, you, I, I drove better. I thought I drove better when I smoked, you understand, like, because I was more into the road and what I was doing. Like, I put myself in a lot of dangerous and um, dangerous situations. Did either of you ever contemplate suicide? Because we hear that as well with teens and drug use, that sometimes they think about taking their own life. I was put into a hospital um, twice because of the fact that I drank so much alcohol that they thought I tried to kill myself. And I did used to cut my wrist before I um, entered any program, before I called my first charge because of, you know, my drinking got so bad that my hangovers that I used to get would make me, you know, just want to die because I would just be laying there, pounding headache, throwing up. I felt like I was dying, so I figured, you know what, I should just get it done and over with, and it was never a good result in the end. Anti-drug ads often get mixed reviews. We're exposed to them on television and newspapers on the radio. Some people say they help to discourage drug use among teenagers. Some people say they encourage drug use. Others say that they have no effect at all. Did either of you ever see those ads on TV? Did you think about that when you saw those ads telling you, don't do it, it's a bad decision? Oh, yeah, I saw them, um, but it never really, you know, phased me nothing. I just continued to do what I wanted to do, and that was it, and nobody was going to stop me. There's one inside drug commercial that sticks in my head, and I'll never forget it. Um, it's the one with uh, the, older, the older kid. 
he goes to the uh, baseball park to go pick up his little brother. Him and his little brother are talking. And, like, the older kid is telling the younger kid, like, oh, just try it. It's good. It's down the third. And the little kid is saying, oh, that's whack. And, nah, I wouldn't do that. You're lame. And, and the big kid is like, come on, you be cool to stand the third. And then they pause. And then they both start laughing. And then the older brother says, all right, you got to think of something better to say next time. And then they walk off together. When I used to see that commercial, because I have two younger brothers, I used to, half the time I'd be high when I'd be seeing the commercial. And I, it used to make me think. Like, my conscience used to get to me. I used to think, like, my little brothers know I smoke. And, like, sometimes I smell like it all the time. My room would smell like it. And it's, like, it just made me feel kind of bad. You know what I mean? Like, my conscience kind of got to me. Like, I'm, I'm sitting there getting high all the time. My little brothers, I might be influencing them in a bad way right now. So I think um, I think those commercials are kind of good in the sense that they make people think about what they're doing. We often see in Hollywood today stars who are going into rehab. Lindsay Lohan in and out of rehab. Britney Spears. Curtis, do you think that in some ways that is helping to fuel this problem, that young people are seeing rehab as a trendy thing? I think it's helping the fight against the drugs, to be honest. To see a celebrity and to recognize, for them to be able to recognize, oh, wow, it can happen to Britney. You know, Lindsay could go through stuff like that. You know, if they're not exempt, then maybe I'm not exempt, and maybe I shouldn't, you know, follow in those footsteps. Were you ever influenced by Hollywood stars? Did you look up to them or not, Khalil? Yeah, in a way. Some, you know, when I was younger, like younger teenager, um, like music artists and stuff, certain songs, it's kind of, they kind of glorify certain things that I was like trying and doing. So I could say it kind of influenced me a little bit. Who are your role models today? Do you have a role model, Amanda? Um, my mother, because she's been through, you know, the troubles with me, having me as a daughter, um, you know, the divorces that she's been through with my father, dealing with his drug addiction, getting abused by males, still supporting us with, you know, the lowest pay that she can get on a job. And I still I still look up to her because she's still doing what she needs to do, and she has not quit once. Khalil? Um, honestly, Curtis. Uh, like, seriously, though, um, him and a couple other counselors, I've been there for almost a year now, so, like, I've gotten to know them, and um, I know, like, some of the things that they've been through when they were younger and stuff like that. Like, some of them have been through a lot, and... And I see them today, they're doing well. You know, they have a good job, good career, and they're doing what they have to do, and they're still on top of it, and they're helping other people. So I'd say I'd say they'd be my role models because they're they showing me I can do it. They can do it, I can do it. Curtis, I don't want to put you on the spot, but that must make you feel pretty good. Yeah, it does. I've heard it in the past. It reinforces in me that I'm I'm having a positive impact on someone. For that, if it takes me to have to be put on the spot, then I'm more for that. I'm curious about what you gave up, Amanda and Khalil. Amanda, what did you give up? Did you lose friendships? Did you lose people close to you? Did you lose an opportunity at something that you were really good at when you were in your early teens, uh, whether that be a sport or a musical instrument? I lost a lot of things. I lost, I was actually, when I was younger, I was very good at soccer. I lost, you know, I can't even breathe anymore and run a couple of feet and be okay. I lost, you know, the ability to run. I've lost a lot of family members trust that's one of my big things i mean running that's nothing compared to what your family can give and offer you and i lost a lot of that i just i lost being a teenager i lost having those years that you're supposed to you know cherish when you're in high school those are you know i hear those are like the golden years of your life is to be in high school and actually participate in the games and the 
you know, the proms and everything, and I can't do that. What about you, though? Do you miss anything? You're 19 years old now. What would you say you missed as a kid? When I was young, I was like, I was an athlete. Like, I was a full-out athlete. Uh, I was in a swim team. I played basketball. I was on basketball teams. I played um, football when I was young, around 13. I stopped all of that. You understand? I started hanging out, went to party more, go to parties, uh, started smoking weed, which led to drinking. I mean, I think I had fun in high school and everything, but I think I did miss out. Looking back, do you think that there was anything that would have prevented you from going down a path of drugs and alcohol? I feel that um, maybe if, like, I had a man figure, like, around me, because, like, I was raised with just my mother, and she did a perfect job, wonderful job, but a woman raising a man, she can only do so much, you understand? Maybe if I had, a, like, a, a older guy around, her, you know what I mean, show me the right away and, and ring my neck instead of me looking at um, negative guys in the street and seeing what they're doing and just following them. I would say maybe trying to shield me from what, like, seeing my father go through all that, like, maybe if I haven't witnessed everything that was going on, but other times I I don't want to take back what I've already done. Like, that's in the past, but I don't want to lose that knowledge that I have now because without that, I wouldn't be where I am today. You know, I like who I am now. Curtis Potter is a counselor at Daytop, an alcohol and drug treatment program for teenagers and adults. Curtis, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Also want to thank and commend Amanda and Khalil for coming in and sharing their stories with us. Amanda is 16 years old. She's currently in treatment at Daytops Residential Center in Rhinebeck in Dutchess County. Amanda, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And Khalil, he's 19 years old. He's from Brooklyn. He has gone through treatment at Daytop. Khalil, thank you. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Daytop and its drug treatment services, visit daytop.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and find out how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. Thanks for listening. <laughs>